0: Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be Alma chapter 42. This is a conclusion of Alma's uh, discussion to his son, Corianton. Another important uh, and rich uh, s- chapter that has so much so much doctrine and so much good stuff in it. So let's get into this one. Verse 1, And now, my son, I perceive there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind, which he cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God in the punishment of the sinner. For ye do try to suppose that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned, I think he was hoping that that was the case, that uh, we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. I think that's what Coriantum was hoping for. Uh, to a state of misery, God does not hate us when we sin. He wants us to return to him, but His in his way through repentance and the atonement. Verse 2, Now behold, my son, I will explain this thing unto thee, for behold, after the Lord God sent our first parents forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence they were taken, yea, he drew out the man, Adam and Eve did not want to leave Eden, but were forced to do so, and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubim. Cherubim is the Hebrew plural of cherub, though it is used in the scriptures as a singular noun. In the celestial hierarchy, cherubs are represented as spirits next in order to seraphs regarded as chief among their duties is that of guarding the holy place or the place where God dwells. That was by Milton McConkie. Continuing verse two, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the tree of life. Now in the scripture, the word flaming is actually a bright sword. So it's not a a lightsaber. Sorry, everybody from Star Wars. Uh, Our goal is to get back to the tree of life through repentance and the atonement of Christ. The temple is a metaphor for that journey. Verse three, now we see that the man had become as God. As to the fall, the scripture set forth that there were in the Garden of Eden two trees. One was the tree of life, which figuratively re- refers to eternal life. The other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which figuratively refers to how and why and in what manner mortality and all that appertains to it came into being. Eve partook without full understanding. Adam partook knowing that unless he did so, <clears throat> he and Eve could not have children and fulfill the commandment that they, were, that they received to multiply and replenish the earth. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. Elder McConkie also said, The account is speaking figuratively. What is meant by partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that our first parents complied with whatever laws were involved so that their bodies would change from their state of paradisiacal immortality to a state of natural mortality. Continuing verse 3, Knowing good and evil, unless he should put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The thought would be more complete were it to read and live forever in his sins. It is not endless life that the Lord sought to prevent by placing the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. Rather, it was endless life in an unrepentant state. Thus, God in his mercy granted Adam a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. And that was Millet McConkie. And then concluding verse 3, the Lord God placed cherubim in a flaming sword that he should not partake of the fruit. And thus we see that there was a time, this is Mormon's uh, explanation then, there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary, or a trial, or a test, time, a time to repent and serve God. It's not just repentance that is necessary, but also serving God. Hugh Nibley said we are being tested every minute of the day by the choices we make, by the reactions we have, by the things we say, by the things we think about. It's like the ancient Christian doctrine of the two ways, the way to the right and the way to the left, whichever they are. You must make the choice, and you may you have you may have made the wrong choice every day of your life up until now. But as long as you are here, it is still not too late. You can still make the right choice every minute. You can make the wrong, the right choice. It's never too late to make the right one. We have a time to repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state. Well, it can't be anything else. It's a time to prepare to meet God. That's why we need the gospel here. Verse 5, For behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever in his sins, according to the word of God, having no space or time for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void, and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. But behold, it was appointed unto man to die. Therefore, as they were cut off from the tree of life, they should be cut off from the face of the earth. And man became lost forever, yea, they became fallen man. And they would have remained in that state had there been no atonement. Adam brought, brought the fallen condition, mortality, through partaking of the forbidden fruit. All men and women are subject to this condition. All, Jehovah spoke to Adam, inasmuch as thy children are conceived in sin, even so when they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts, and they taste the bitter, that they may know to prize the good. Brother Millet has written, No, of course, we do not believe with Calvin in the moral depravity of men and women. No, we do not believe with Luther that man, because of his carnality and depravity, does not even have the power to choose good over evil, and we do not believe that children are born in sin, that they inherit the so called sin of Adam, either through sexual union or by birth. Rather, children are conceived in sin, meaning first, that they are conceived into a world of sin, and second, that conception is the vehicle by which the effects of the fall, not the original transgression which God has forgiven, are transmitted to Adam's posterity. To say that we are not punished for the transgression is not to say that we are not subject to and affected by it, Adam's fallen nature is passed on to his children, and thereby from generation to generation. Thus, sin is implanted in man's nature at conception, just as death is implanted at the same time. Both of these, death and sin, are present only in seed form at conception, and therefore a child is neither dead nor sinful when born. Death and sin do, however, come to pass as a result of man's nature as he grows up. Sin comes naturally, just as does death. This is what we call the fall of man. Adam and thus all of us, as his children, were freed from whatever original guilt might have been, might have once been, a, as a result of Adam's transgression. But what of our own fall? Gerald Lund has written: If we know God, if we know good from evil, and then sin, which according to Paul all men do, then we must talk about a second fall. This is not the fall of Adam. This is one's own personal fall. This fall, which our, which our own, not Adam's transgression, brings about requires redemption as surely as mankind needed redemption from this consequence of Adam's fall. We'll term this the fall of me. Now, since we have no one to blame for this except ourselves, our redemption becomes conditional upon our actions. This is what Lehi meant when he said that the sacrifice that the Messiah offered to satisfy the ends of the law is viable only for those with a a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That was by Millet McConkie. Verse 7, And now now ye see... By this, that our first parents were cut off both temporally, meaning physically and pertaining to the mortal body, and spiritually from the presence of the Lord. And thus we see they became subjects to follow after their own will. In other words, they had agency. Now behold, it was not expedient or not suitable or appropriate that man should be reclaimed or recovered or brought back from this temporal death, for that would destroy the great plan of happiness. Therefore, as the soul could never die, meaning the spirit, and the fall had brought upon all mankind a spiritual death, as well as a temporal, that is, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord, it was expedient that mankind should be reclaimed from this spiritual death. Therefore, as they had become carnal or worldly, given to crude physical pleasures, sensual and devilish by nature, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare. It became a preparatory state. And now remember, my son, if it were not for the plan of redemption, laying it aside, as soon as they were dead, their souls were miserable being cut off from the presence of the Lord. Second Nephi chapter nine says that without the atonement we would have been the angels to the devil. Verse 12, And now there was no means to reclaim men from this fallen state, which man had brought upon himself because of his own disobedience. Therefore, according to justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about, only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state, yea, this preparatory state, for except it were for these conditions. Mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. God cannot cease to be God. This is just a teaching method. This is an argument to the impossible. He will never do anything that would cause himself to cease to be God. This is just hyperbole. Verse 14, And thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. Elder Holland said, This loving, charitable, and merciful generosity of the Savior raises the inevitable question of the place of justice in his working out of the atonement. The balance between seemingly contradictory principles is examined in the Book of Mormon most skillfully and because it is a father speaking to his own transgressing son most sensitively by Alma the Younger when instructing his son Corianton. Obviously the demands of justice require that penalties must be paid for violation of the law. Adam transgressed and so have all of us. Thus the judgment of death physically and the consequences of hell spiritually is pronounced as a just reward. Furthermore, once guilty, none of us could personally do anything to overcome that fate. We do not have in us the seeds of immortality allowing us to conquer death physically, and we have not been perfect in our behavior, thus forfeiting the purity that would let us return to the presence of God spiritually. Furthermore, God cannot simply turn a blind eye to the breaking of divine law, because in so doing he would dishonor justice and would cease to be God, with which thing he would never do. The sorry truth for mortal men and women was, then, that there was no means to reclaim them from this fallen state, which man had brought upon himself because of his own disobedience. Thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. In verse 15, and now the mercy, the, the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. Elder McConkie said, mercy is thus, the re, is thus for the repentant, the faithful, the obedient, those who love and serve God. All others fail to escape the clutches of justice. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Salvation is the reward of those who conform to the plan of mercy. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So infinite in scope is the plan of mercy that it applies to the living and the dead. Those who did not have the opportunity to subject themselves by repentance to the plan of mercy while in this life, but who would have done so had the opportunity been afforded them, will have their chance in the spirit world. <clears throat> they shall have... They shall then be saved from the grasp of justice and reaping the full blessings of mercy shall go on to celestial reward. There is never a time when the spirit is too is too old to approach God. The prophet said, all are within the reach of pardoning mercy, who have not committed the unpardonable sin, which hath no forgiveness, neither in this world nor in the world to come. There is a way to release the spirits of the dead, that is, by the power and authority of the priesthood. By binding and loosing on earth, this doctrine appears glorious inasmuch as it exhibits the greatness of divine compensation and benevolence in the extent of the plan of human salvation. <clears throat> Verse 16. Now repentance could not come unto man except there was a punishment, which also was eternal, as the life of the soul should be, affixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the life of the soul. Now how could a man repent except he should sin? How could he sin if there was no law? How could there be a law save there was a punishment? Daniel Ludlow has said, Justice requires that God must be a God of order and that he must be just and impartial. Mercy agrees with justice. However, mercy introduces the possibility of vicarious payment of the laws that have been transgressed. The law of mercy paraphrased as follows. Whenever a law is broken, a payment or atonement must be made. However, the person does not need to make atonement or need to make payment if he will repent and if he can find someone who is both able and willing to make payment. Note the law of mercy insists the demands of justice be met fully. Verse 18. Now there was a punishment affixed and a just law given which brought remorse of conscience unto man. Harold B. Lee says that remorse of conscience is the greatest hell. Greatest hell that one can suffer is the burning of one's conscience. The scriptures say that his thoughts will condemn him. He'll have a bright recollection of all his life. You'll remember that in the scriptures they speak of the Lamb's Book of Life, which is a record kept of man's life, which is kept in heaven. Well, who keeps that record? Not only the records on earth, but there's a record in our lives in heaven. Men will be judged according to the records that have been kept of our lives. Now when we fail of that highest degree of glory and realize that we what we've lost, there will be a burning in the conscience that will be worse than any physical kind of fire that I assume one could suffer." Verse 19, now if there was no law given, if a man murdered he should die, would he be afraid he would die if he should murder? And also if there was no law given against sin, men would not be afraid to sin. And if there was no law given, if men sinned, what could justice do or mercy either? For they would have no claim upon the creature. Elder Oaks explained Alma's teachings in these words, Unlike the the changeable laws of man, the laws of God are fixed and permanent, irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world. These laws of God are likewise concerned with justice. The idea of justice as what one deserves is the fundamental premise of all scriptures that speak of men's being judged according to their works. According to eternal law, the consequences that follow from the justice of God are severe and permanent. When a commandment is broken, a commensurate penalty is imposed. This happens automatically. Punishments prescribed by the laws of man only follow the judge's action, but under the laws of God the consequences and penalties of sin are inherent in the act. There is a law given and a punishment affixed, the prophet Alma taught, and justeth claimeth the creature and executeth the law, and the law inflicteth the punishment. Alma explained, and thus we see that all mankind were fallen and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. Abinadi added that the Lord cannot deny justice when it has its claim. By itself, justice is uncompromising. The justice of God holds each of us responsible for our own transgressions and automatically imposes the penalty. This reality should permeate our understanding and it should influence all our teachings about the commandments of God and the effect of individual transgressions. Can man in and of himself overcome the spiritual death all mankind suffers from the fall, which we bring upon ourselves anew by our own sinful acts? No. Can we work out our own salvation? Never. By the law, no no flesh is justified. Salvation doth not come by the law alone, Abinadi warned. Shakespeare had one of his characters declare this truth. In the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. Verse twenty two but there is a law given and a punishment affixed, and a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth, otherwise justice claimeth the creature and executeth the law, and the law inflicteth the punishment, if if not so, the works of justice will be destroyed, and God would cease to be God. There he is using that hyperbole again. I believe that our Heavenly Father wants to save every one of His children. I do not think He intends to shut any of us off because of some slight transgression, some slight failure to observe some rule or regulation. I believe that in His justice and mercy, He will give us the maximum reward for our acts, give us all that that He can give, and in the reverse, I believe that He will impose upon us the minimum penalty which it is possible for Him to impose. That was by J. Reuben Clark. Verse 23, But God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent. Bruce C. Hafen has said, Mercy is thus rehabilitated, not retributive or arbitrary. The Lord asks repentance from a transgressor not to compensate the Savior for paying the debt of justice, but to induce the transgressor to undertake a meaningful process of personal development toward a Christlike nature. At the same time, mercy depends ultimately on the Lord's extension of unmerited grace. Even though conditioned on repentance for personal sins, mercy is never fully earned by its recipients. Repentance is a necessary but not a sufficient condition of salvation and exaltation. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. The unearned nature of mercy is demonstrated by the atonements having unconditionally compensated for the disabilities imposed on mankind by the fall of Adam. Adam and Eve and their posterity were utterly powerless to overcome the physical and spiritual deaths that were introduced by the fall. Moreover, transgressors do not pay fully for their sins through the process of repentance. Even though repentance requires restitution to the extent of one's ability, most forms of restitution are beyond any person's ability to achieve. No matter how complete our repentance It would all be to no avail without a mediator willing and able to pay our debt to justice on condition of our repentance. Thus, even with sincere and complete repentance, all are utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. That was out of the Encyclopedia of Mormonism by Bruce Hafen. Uh, continuing verse 23 and mercy cometh because of the atonement and the atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God and thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works according to the law and justice for behold justice exerciseth all his demands and also mercy claimeth all which is her own and none and thus none but the truly penitent are saved the good news of the gospel is that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, there is something called mercy. Mercy signifies an advantage greater than what we deserve. This could come by the withholding of a deserved punishment or by the granting of an undeserved benefit. If justice is balanced, then mercy is counterbalance. If justice is exactly what we deserve, then mercy is more benefit than we deserve. In its relationship to justice and mercy, the atonement is the means by which justice is served and mercy is extended. In combination, justice and mercy in the atonement constitute the glorious eternal wholeness of the justice and mercy of God. Mercy has several different manifestations in connection with our redemption. The universal resurrection from physical death is is an unconditional act of mercy made possible by the atonement. Alma taught Corianton that mercy cometh because of the atonement, and the atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. A second effect of the atonement concerns our redemption from spiritual death, We are redeemed from the fall of Adam without condition. We are redeemed from the effects of our personal sins on condition of our obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Justice is served and mercy is extended by the suffering and shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Messiah offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law. In this way, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice that God might be a perfect just God and a merciful God also. Verse 25. What do ye suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox, as there are plants which flourish only in mountain soil. So it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. That was by C.S. Lewis. Verse 26 and thus, it, and thus God bringeth about his great and eternal purposes, which were prepared from the foundation of the world. And thus cometh about the salvation and the redemption of men, and also their destruction and misery. Therefore, O my son, whosoever will come may come and partake of the waters of life freely. And whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. But in the last day it shall be restored unto him according to his deeds. If he has desired, we will be judged for the desires of our heart to do evil and has not repented in his days. Behold, evil shall be done unto him according to the restoration of God. And now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. O my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do let, but do you let the justice of God and His mercy and His long suffering have full sway in your heart, and let it bring you down to the dust in humility. So Alma is hoping here that his sons going to repent and uh, come back. Elder Orson F. Whitney held out this hope for the parents of wandering or wayward children. He said, "You parents of the willful and the wayward, don't give them up. Don't cast them off. They are not utterly lost." The shepherd will find his sheep, they were his before they were yours, long before he entrusted them to your care, and you cannot begin to love them as he loves them. They have but strayed in ignorance from the path of right, and God is merciful to ignorance. Only the fullness of knowledge brings the fullness of accountability. Our Heavenly Father is far more merciful, infinitely more charitable than even the best of his servants, and the everlasting gospel is mightier in power to save than our narrow, finite minds can comprehend." And then finishing up the chapter, verse thirty-one. And now, O my son, ye are called to God; ye are called of God to preach the word unto this people. And now, my son, go thy way, declare the word with truth and soberness, that thou mayest bring souls unto repentance, that the great plan of mercy may have claim upon them, and may God grant unto you even according to my words, Amen. And so that's the end of uh, Alma's discussion. Uh, there's further information if you wanted to read uh, more about the resurrection and, and ju- judgment. Uh, if, you, if you look at section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, Joseph F. Smith's vision of the re- redemption of the dead. And also, I would uh, commend you a, a talk by Cleon um, um, Skousen, W. Cleon Skousen, um, that's really good. He gave a talk to some missionaries in Texas. A number of years ago, it's called The Meaning of the Atonement. It was given back in 1977. But if you can find that on the internet, it's really a good talk. Pretty deep doctrine, but really good. I bear testimony of the truth of these things, that uh, justice and mercy uh, do do, uh, work together, but we're hoping for mercy, uh, and that by um, doing all the things necessary so that mercy can apply, then justice would apply in our case too. I bear testimony of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.